Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast for supporters of the Islamic History Podcast. And we are currently going over the life of Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And this will be episode number 25 in this series. In the last episode, we covered the run up to the battle of the trench, Ghazwatullah Khandak, and we are going to continue that story today, just discussing or basically recapping what happened in the last episode. Essentially, Prophet Muhammad and the Muslims, they learned that several of their enemies were preparing to invade Medina. The uh, enemies included the pagan tribes of the Quraysh and the Ghatafan, and these two tribes together would be bringing 100,000 soldiers to Medina. Uh, in addition to that, they will also have uh, several little allied clans coming along with them. And they were being they were being partially financed by the tribe of uh, Banu Nadir, the Jewish tribe that had been expelled from Medina in the previous year. Banu Nadir actually had been the architect of the whole thing. They brought the idea to the Quraysh. And Banu Nadir had also promised to give the Ghotafan uh, tribe, the Quraysh allies, a year's worth of their harvest. And so uh, because so many different groups had allied against the Muslims, this Battle is often also called um, Ghazatul Ahzab or the Battle of the Confederates because there are a bunch of federated tribes, even though they weren't really federate federation or anything like that as we know it today, but they had come together to invade the Muslims. Now, as we finished off in the last um, episode, we discussed how Banu Nadir went to Banu Qurayza, which was the last Jewish tribe still uh, uh, remaining in Medina. They had remained loyal to Prophet Muhammad. They had abided by their contract with Prophet Muhammad wasallam. And however, some of some members, some of the chiefs of Banu Qurayza had gone along with Banu, with the uh, leaders of Banu Nadir um, to basically put this whole scheme together. But the main body of Banu Qurayza had remained loyal and when the chiefs of Banu Nadir came to meet them in Medina, came to meet the main body of Banu Qurayza, their chief leader, their, their leader leader of Banu Qurayza, this was the last tribe, last Jewish tribe still in Medina. Actually, initially, he refused to even meet him, refused to even let the guy into the fortress, but he kept wearing him down. And eventually, um, the, um, the leader of Banu Qurayza, let him in, and he was eventually convinced. Uh, by the way, this was um, Ka'ab ibn Asad. He was the leader of Banu Qurayza. Banu Qurayza, once again, was the last Jewish tribe remaining in Medina. The previous two had been expelled after conflicts with the Muslims. Banu Qurayza was the last one, and their leader, Ka'ab ibn Asad, he initially refused to join Banu Nadir, one of those tribes that had been expelled previously. He initially refused to join them, but uh, they, the chief of Banu Nadir kept wearing down on Ka'ab ibn Asad, and finally he agreed to join them, and he came along with the um, with the uh, Confederates. And so now the Prophet, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he doesn't yet know about Banu Qurayza's treachery. 
All he knows is that the uh, 10,000 soldiers are on their way to Medina. And so he brings the companions together, particularly the primary companion leaders of the, the um, his closest companions from Al-Muhajirun, the immigrants, as well as the leaders of the Ansar, um, the two main tribes of the Ansar that is, there, um, Aus and the Khazraj. He brings them all together and starts to discuss with them how they can uh, defend Medina. Uh, actually, I believe he brought in all of the, his companions, all those who were willing to attend, because one person, the most more important person who was there was Salman al-Farisi. He's the one who brought up the idea. And Salman al-Farisi was a former slave, so he wasn't even Arab. So he um, was not necessarily in the hierarchy of, of um, companions at this time. So evidently, the Prophet brought together his companions to discuss how they're going to defend Medina. He must have brought along everybody. So scratch what I said before, not just the high-ranking members of uh, the companions, but it must have been all of the companions. In any case, it was, of course, Salman al-Farisi who suggested the idea of, di of digging a trench around the vulnerable parts of Medina. He was from Persia, which was a uh, in comparison to the Arab nations at the time or the Arab tribes and the, the people of the Arabian Peninsula, Persia was well ahead of, ahead of them. So in their sophistication, their culture, their um, how long they've been in power, their military strength, their, po their political structure, they were way ahead of the Arabs. And so he had seen the, he has seen lots of fighting in his time, and we've discussed his background, Salman al-Farisi, that is. We've discussed his background in the previous episode. So he had learned that one of the strategies that outnumbered soldiers would use was to build a trench around them to try to slow down the enemy a bit. And so he, he offered this suggestion to the Prophet. The Prophet liked it, and the Muslims got on with digging the trench. And that's why this battle is often called the Battle of the Trench, Ghazwatul Khandaq. So let's uh, discuss this trench a little bit. Uh, so the Muslims, they, um, they begin digging the trench uh, around the weaker parts of Medina. It's a common misconception that the trench was built all around Medina, but that would have been too much work. It would have been a lot of space to try to dig, even though Medina was much smaller back then than it is now. It would have been extremely difficult to build a trench that encircled everything that was considered Medina at that time. That would have been uh, maybe about 30, 40 miles of trench. I'm kind of guessing here based on what I, my studying of the maps and everything, but it would have been a lot of ground to cover and they would have never finished it in time. But also it wasn't necessary. And, uh, and we're going to explain why it wasn't necessary in a moment. But also there was enough manpower. The Muslim uh, population was very small at that time. And uh, we're going to go over a little bit of that in about a minute. But there are only about maybe about 3,000 people assisting with the digging of the trench. So that would have been, um, that's a lot of people, I guess. But still, that's not nearly enough to dig an entire uh, trench around the entire city with the army on its way. Now, had they un had unlimited time, yeah, they probably could have done it then. But with this 10,000-man army on the way, that would have been a little bit too difficult. But once again, it wasn't even necessary to dig a trench around the entire city because their Medina wasn't completely open. The only way to invade Medina was from the north. Mount Ahud, which we spoke about several episodes ago. 
is to the north of Medina and any army approaching Medina to invade it, they could go through the Valley of Uhud. This is back then. Things have changed a little bit now. But back then, the only way really to invade Medina was to go through the uh, Valley of Uhud. I mean, the flat space by the mountain of Uhud that led up into the mouth of Medina. So there's a, as far as the rest of Medina is concerned, I strongly encourage you, if you get a chance, to go on Google Earth and look at the topography of Medina. Uh, you can see a bird's eye view of Medina, of course. And some of these structures are still there. Mount Ahud is still there. The, um, the date orchards that I'm about to speak of, those are not there anymore, obviously. But there are other things that are still there. And you can kind of see how if you take away all of the structures and buildings that we have now that there really was only way to invade medina and that is from the north and if you see the modern maps and stuff you'll see what i mean so as far as the rest of medina was concerned there were large date orchards that covered the uh, pr the approaches to the south of medina so uh, it would have been very difficult for 10,000 men with horses and camels and and troops and gear and armor and all this stuff to really go through this thick orchard uh, full of dates and stuff. So that was pretty much their defense to the south. The orchards provided a defense to the south. Only way anybody could get through that would be to chop it all down, and that would have taken too long. So they um, they knew that the south was pretty much taken care of. And to the east and west of Medina, uh, these areas were covered with large uh, tracks of volcanic rock. And you can still see this, as I mentioned, in Google Earth. If you look at Medina from the sky to the right, you can see it kind of it's really it's really amazing. Actually, where you see it, it looks like water or oil that has just spread. We've looked at it from the space and you can see where lava, these black pitches or, or black tracks where lava centuries ago, thousands of years ago, came up from the earth and just spread like liquid and then just hardened into this black, hard, craggy rock that is impossible for uh, for cavalry specifically. Uh, people can probably get across it with some difficulty, but it would be very difficult for horses and camels to get across this rock will just cut up their feet. And so... You can, once again, you can still see this now. It's amazing to see that this stuff is still there. And, of course, you can still see Mount Ahud. Um, that is still there, of course. You can still see that. And you can see to the to the uh, west of Medina, the um, there are still some mountains there, but a lot of that has been demolished and built over over the years. So you can't see that as much, but there are still some mountains that you, that you can see even now. That And this mountain was another form of volcanic rock and just regular mountains that the... Um, would have made it very difficult for anyone or any army to come through. But through to the west, you can still definitely see it on Google Earth. You can still see these um, these large tracks of black volcanic rock that, and it's amazing, like I said, it still looks like liquid. <laughs> you can see the shape of liquid as it came up from the earth all those years ago. And so they really only had to dig a trench over the the northern approaches coming into Medina and a certain section over to the northwest of Medina in between the valley of Uhud, of Uhud and the volcanic rock to the west. And I'll try to explain as best as I can as we go along. Anyway, uh, digging the trench was, of course, very difficult. It's hard, backbreaking work, just digging a trench, you know, digging in the, in the in sand in the middle of the desert and all this heat. 
all men over the age of 14, all the Muslims over the age of 14 were uh, required to help dig the trench. So altogether, that's about 3,000 people, according to the estimates of Tariq Khatabari. But even with all that, they still did not have a lot of people. So the Prophet tried to um, divide people up as evenly as he could to try to work as efficiently as possible. And even with all this, the, um, the hypocrites who were within Medina, we spoke about them before, these were people who openly professed Islam, but secretly didn't really believe. And in times of difficulty like this, their disbelief bubbled to the surface. Well, the hypocrites kept on uh, making up excuses to skip work, so to skip the digging of the trench. So they'll dig for a little while, then say something about they have a family need or whatever and just walk off. Whereas the believers, if they really did come across, have an emergency where they had to leave, they will ask the prophet's permission to leave and a prophet would grant it to them and then they go do whatever they had to do and come back to work. Whereas the hypocrites, they would just dig for a few minutes or so. They say, you know, I got some animals I got to tend and just walk off without even asking the prophet's permission. It shows you the mindset of the hypocrites at that time. And even the Prophet ﷺ, he also went into the trench to dig, and he didn't find himself above helping the people dig. He was down there as well. He assigned the men who were doing the digging into groups of 10, and each person was to dig about 60 feet of trench. Um, so each uh, section of trench, well, the trench was basically 15 approximately, approximations. Uh, they didn't have the measurements like we have now, but... Uh, basically we used translations of what um, however the um, Arabs called um, described it back then and we translate it now and so we kind of have an idea of how how deep and wide it was so the trench was approximately 15 feet deep and 15 feet wide so you could kind of try to kind of guess how how um, how um, high that is or how wide that is and so so that is a good enough that's pretty deep no way a, a horse it would be very difficult, if nearly impossible, for a horse to jump over that. Um, a guy could go, could climb down there with difficulty. If an enemy was coming, they could climb down there, but they risk being shot by arrows and, and hit with spears as they climb down. It wouldn't be an easy thing to do. Um, and we'll get to the actual battle in and of itself in a moment. But 15 feet deep, 15 feet wide, that definitely is enough to stop uh, the armies of that at that point of time, at that, with the sophistication and the level of technology the Arabs had at that point of time. So as I mentioned, the um, the trench was roughly shaped like an N. I, I saw you a lot of some maps, a lot of uh, Muslim scholars over the years who who uh, tried to approximate these things and how they look based upon the um, the hadith and the stories of the Sirah from way back then. And so from what I gather, it was roughly N shaped, like the letter N, like in November. So you had one section going from south to north over the um oh boy i'm messing this up one section traveling north on the northwestern side of medina and then once it gets north it turns back down sharply to the west once again still over the front of medina over the north of medina but just going west and then up again on the eastern side or north again on the eastern side right before the volcanic rock so uh, to protect that part just before um, an army can reach the space between the volcanic rock and medina look at the maps uh, <laughs> try to do the best you can to understand it i hope i got it right anyway so the altogether the trench was about two and a half to three and a half miles long i know there's a big difference there's maybe a mile difference in there but 
once again, it's kind of hard to sometimes decipher how exactly how exactly long these things were. Uh, translating measurements from, you know, over a thousand years ago using ancient technolo- technology or measurements that were kind of iffy at best and then translating them into today's world is, is not really easy. But roughly two and a half to three and a half miles long was the trench. So, and they started digging, by the way, towards the end of Ramadan. And so the Muslims were fasting during this period of time. And it was also relatively cold. Now, when we say relatively cold, we're we're talking about cold for the Arabian Peninsula, okay? So I checked times um, or temperature in the Arabian Peninsula at that time. And it can get roughly, it doesn't really get much hotter than the uh, 80s 80s or so, but it can get as cold as as the 50s and maybe even high 40s, talking about Fahrenheit. So... For people fasting, um, and the days don't necessarily get shorter in the Middle East or in this part of the Middle East, um, we don't—they don't have daylight savings like we have in the United States. So, the um, the time frame would have—it would have still been a lot of work to do all this work while they're fasting, still in the hot sun. May not have been the triple-digit weather that, that Arabia ex- experiences once you get into June and July and stuff like that. But it was still pretty, uh, pretty, um, pretty warm weather, and. The, uh, this period of time was during the month of January, so that's why it was cooler at that time than it would be now. So during this period, while they're digging the trench, there were a couple of miracles, at least three miracles, and they're kind of all together, kind of all related. So we'll go over them real quick. While, they would, while the men were digging the trench, uh, a group of them came across this really large boulder, it was uh, so large, in fact, that nobody was able to move it or break it or crack it with their tools that they had. And they probably had some rudimentary form of uh, pickaxes and shovels and stuff like that. But whatever they had, they couldn't break this boulder with it. And they had to move this boulder in order to continue the trench. And so they uh, sent Salman al-Farisi to ask the prophet, what should they do about it? Should they just dig around the boulder since they couldn't really move it or what what to do? And so the prophet, sallallahu alayhi he came out there to see what was going on. And then uh, he saw the boulder, took up a pickaxe, and then shouted Allahu Akbar and struck the boulder three times. And each time he struck it, there was a flash of white light or flash of lightning. So my guess is that this is towards the end of the day when it was dark because as the um, hadith mentions, when he struck it, there was a flash of lightning that lit up everything from all around Medina. So I guess that could happen during the day. You could probably could still see it. But um, I would guess it would probably be, and also considering what happened next, it would have had to have been closer to the evening. And I'll tell you why I believe it's closer to the evening in a moment. And so he struck this boulder three times. On the third time he bol- he struck it, it shattered uh, into pieces. Pieces were enough where the people could go ahead and, and, move it, and move it out the way. And so as he was striking women, remember, we mentioned that there, that, um, there were these flashes of white light. And afterwards, the Prophet he asked the companions to confirm that they saw what he saw, that they all saw that flash light. And they confirmed that, yeah, we saw that light also. But then the Prophet went on to explain to them that when he struck it, each time he struck the boulder and that light flashed, he had a vision. In the first vision, in the first strike, he saw the palaces of Al-Hira and Tesifan, which are which at that time were both part of the of the Persian Sassanid Empire. 
on the second strike, he saw the palaces of the pale men of the Byzantines. They probably called them Roman at that time, but basically he meant Europeans, pale men, Europeans, and he saw the palaces of Europeans. Uh, most likely this was in Syria or the, their palace in Syria, because Syria, at that time, Syria and Jerusalem and Egypt, all that was part of the Eastern Roman Empire or the Byzantine Empire, as we call it now. And on the third strike, he, thought, he saw the palaces of Sun'at, which is the capital of Yemen. And then he told he also informed the companions that uh, these visions were explained to him by Angel Gabriel that his nation would eventually conquer all of these areas. And that is eventually what happened. Within a few years of his death, the Muslims did conquer all three of these areas, Persia, uh, Syria, and Yemen. Now, when the hypocrites heard what the prophet said, they began to mock him and also mock the companions. They're saying that the prophet is filling you with false hopes and dreams. And he's, he, they reminded the companions, you can't even get out of Medina for fear of, of being killed. You're sitting here digging a trench, locking yourself in, and you're afraid to even go out of the city. You're talking about you're going to conquer a bunch of mighty empires, whatever. This is how the um, companions spoke to the, um, I'm sorry, the hypocrites spoke to the companions who believed in Prophet Muhammad. That's two miracles right there. First one was the prophet actually breaking the boulder with, by himself and all these other men couldn't do it. And then the visions, that's the second vision or the second, I'm sorry, the second miracle. And then came the third miracle. Jabir ibn Abdullah, one of the companions, he, when the prophet stood up to go uh, inspect the boulder, he noticed the prophet had some stones tied around his waist, pressing in on his stomach. And this was a tactic that people used back then to help with hunger pains. And as we mentioned before, at this point in time, it was not just Ramadan. The Muslims were also pretty much trapped in Medina. With an army of 10,000 people on the way, they couldn't send out caravans and bring in food and everything. All they had was within all they could eat and everything was stuff that they had within Medina. This is what's again, desert. It's not like it really goes a lot. They have date palms and stuff like that, but still they were pretty much locking themselves inside. And so it wasn't quite yet a famine, but they were experiencing hunger. A lot of people did not have food to eat and they were fasting anyway. So people would fast, maybe break their fast with some water and then just keep on going hungry because it just wasn't the food. The Muslims couldn't go out of Medina. They were trapped in there. They were sealing themselves up even more with this trench. But the point is that many of the companions and the Prophet himself had gone at least three days without eating or had they eaten and they had only eaten very, very little. So Jabir, he saw the prophet with the stones tied around his waist and he felt sorry for the prophet. And so he went to his wife and he told his wife, he asked his wife, what do they have available to eat? And she said, well, we have one little lamb that we have been cultivating for a while and we have um, a little bit of barley. And so Jabir ibn Abdullah, he wanted to still help the prophet and give the prophet something to eat. So he told his wife to make a meal with that little bit of food. And so, of course, she pounded the barley into flour, began kneading it into bread and put it in the oven. And then they, slaughter, they slaughtered the lamb. She began to prepare lamb stew. Now, Jabir's intention was to only share this meal with the prophet and maybe a few of his closest companions. And even his wife 
was telling him, when you go out there and tell the prophet, don't embarrass me, embarrass me by bringing in a bunch of people and we can't feed them, only bring a few people. So Jabir ibn Abdullah, he went out to find the Prophet and he quietly whispered to the Prophet, we have a meal and how about you come with some of your companions? And so the Prophet instead, he shouted out, Jabir has some food for us. Come on, he has a, he has a feast for us. Come by his house. And Jabir was like, well, Jabir and his wife were taken by surprise. They had only intended for the Prophet to bring a few of his companions. Now, he just shouted it out, and lo and behold, 1,000 people wound up coming to Jabir's home. And this is why I say in the beginning, I said in the beginning, I believe that it was um, the flashes of lightning would happen at nighttime because it was Ramadan, and for them to have come around to eat, it would have had to have been at night. It would have had to have been after the sun gone down at least. And so that's why I believe that, and this happened once again, uh, Jabir invited the Prophet وسلم, uh, around the same time they, uh, the Prophet had, right when the Prophet had cracked open that boulder. And so that's why, you know, I believe that the flashes of light happened at night instead of during the daytime. And of course, Allah knows best. So the Prophet yells out for all the companions uh, to come along to eat. All of them don't come. We mentioned the 3,000 people digging, but the prophet, his voice is not a microphone or anything. Like that. He, he, he shouts it out, word passes along. About 1,000 or 3,000 diggers heard it. Maybe the others had food. Maybe they didn't hear. Maybe they're too far away. Maybe they're just preoccupied. Who knows? But 1,000 people wind up at Jabir's house. Before they got there, the prophet told Jabir uh, to tell his wife, don't take the bread out of the oven and don't uncover the pot that the stew is cooking. And so the prophet, he goes to meet to meet Jabir at his home. The um, the uh, companions are coming over. The prophet tells them, don't crowd into Jabir's house, wait outside. And so the companions basically form a line outside. So the prophet, he goes into Jabir's house where the food is cooking. And he begins to break off a piece of bread from the oven. So this is most likely flatbread. I'm pretty sure that's what they had, mostly what they ate back then. So they... Probably didn't have. I'm sure they had yeast, but I don't think the Arabs were really used, Arabs were really were really using yeast back then, especially not in this situation. Anyway, so this is mostly flatbread. So the Prophet would take uh, to break off a piece of bread and then dip it into the pot of stew and wrap up some meat and stew into the bread, kind of like a a sandwich of some sort or a roll, and then he would pass it to. Um, the uh, companion standing in line. That person will leave. The prophet will reach into the oven again, break off a piece of bread, dip out some stew, wrap it up um, in kind of like um, a gyro without the vegetables, basically. <laughs> wrap it up like a gyro and pass it on to the next guy. And they kept on going around like this until everyone um, had eaten and everyone was full. And there was still food in there. There was still meat and stew in the pot and there was still bread in the oven. And the prophet was just passing this out. This is the third miracle uh, where the prophet was able to feed all of these people with this little lamb, with this little bit of food that was only meant for maybe five or six people. And so after everyone had eaten their fill, he told Jabir and his wife to eat as much as they want. And when they finished with it, they, they should go ahead and distribute it to the poor. And so that's the third miracle. The first uh, miracle was the breaking of the boulder in and of itself. Second miracle was the... Um, visions the prophet saw and the third miracle was defeating so many people with a little bit of food 
And so the Muslims are still digging this trench. Days, a few days go by, and uh, rumors begin circulating that Banu Qurayza, the last Jewish tribe in Medina, had turned against the Muslims. There, uh, most likely, people had passed by their fortress and seen them making preparations as if for battle. And so, when they saw that, rumors began to spread, and eventually that filtered on down to Prophet Muhammad himself after a while. So, he sent two men to go and investigate these claims. This, uh, the two men he sent were two companions, two Ansars, from, uh, one from um, the Aus and one from the Khazraj. They were chiefs from among their, their tribes or their clans. It was Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, who was a chief. He was a leader within the Aus clan. And then Sa'ad ibn Ubaidah, who was a chief within the Khazraj clan. He sent them to go investigate and see if this was true. But he, he advised them that if they found out that it was true, that Banu Qurayza had in fact betrayed the Muslims, he wanted them to report back to him, but do it in a way that they wouldn't startle the rest of the people in case they heard and cause a panic. And so Sa'ad and, well, Sa'ad and Sa'ad, the two Sa'ads, they went to go investigate. And so they arrive at the um, area that belonged to Banu Qurayza, and they saw what the rumors, that the rumors were true. They were definitely preparing for battle. And so when the two Sa'ad saw this, they began shouting at Banu Qurayza, the, the men who were preparing for battle, and most likely they were building, they were creating fortresses, defensive networks and stuff like that all around their, their own fortresses and the fortress and stuff. So you can imagine them, you know, hammering plywood and stuff, uh, building a barricade, building up... Um, uh, kill holes in order to shoot arrows through and stuff like that. Basically preparing defensive and offensive uh, fortifications onto their fortress. So they see what they're doing and the two Sa'ads, they shout out to Banu Qurayza, reminding them of their covenant and their treaty with Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And so when they did that, Banu Qurayza shouted back that they, don't, they were not aware of any covenant, that they had no treaty with Prophet Muhammad. Remember, in the previous episode, we mentioned how their leader, Ka'ab ibn al-Asad, he had said that he had, a, he, he had acknowledged that he had a treaty and a covenant with the Prophet, and he did not want to break that. But anyway, here they were doing just that. And so the two sides, they jabber back and forth a little bit, um, yell at each other. But eventually they go back and they report to Prophet Muhammad. They tell him in the coded language, basically, that it is true. We have been betrayed. And so now the Prophet is really concerned because now the Muslims have a lot to worry about. Not only do they have this army of 10,000 men coming their way and the Muslims, you know, if we mentioned that it maybe had 3,000 people, if every able-bodied man to the age of 14 was helping to dig the trench, and according to the books of Sita, that was 3,000 people who were building it, that's all the Muslims had. So they were outnumbered 10,000 to 3,000. And on top of that, they had this fifth column within their within the city, within Medina. They had Banu Qurayza to worry about hitting them, hitting them in the rear. And so... The uh, tensions and the uh, fear among the Muslims who knew that Banu Qurayza had in fact betrayed them really began to rise. And so the Muslims were really concerned now. But we will, we will have to discuss um, the actual battle itself, perhaps in the next episode. At this point in time, the, um, the 
Confederate armies, confederate, the federated armies, the allied armies of the prophet, of the enemies of the prophets of Islam, they were arriving now. The first few um, armies were beginning to arrive and they set up camp um, about eight miles north of Medina. These are mostly the, the uh, smaller tribes, smaller pagan tribes that were allied with the Quraysh who happened to be closer to Medina. These are the first to arrive and they began set up, setting up camp eight miles north of Medina. And so now with the trench nearly complete, the Muslims hunkered down and prepared for what was going to be a long siege and hope that this trench idea would work while still worrying about Banu Qurayza preparing to invade them from their rear. And so we'll get into the details of the battle of the trench, Ghazwatul Khandak, in the next episode, inshallah. Until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhum.